The Rocky Mountains hold many mysteries. Millions of people enjoy the natural beauty, but some come across the hidden dangers. This is Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. I'm Melanie, here with my friend Becky. The stories we share are remembered by some, but forgotten by many. Let's dive in to Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. Mel, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. How's your summer? It's getting hot outside. I was saying that earlier. It's not as hot as it normally is, but it's warming up. We've had a pretty mild summer. We're in the desert. So, you know, 110 is is not that shocking to us. But we haven't hit 100 yet. No, we haven't. It's been super mild. Next week we do. I think so. But bring it on. I like the hot temperatures. If I'm in the pool, I can handle it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So um, let's mention our stickers. Yes. We've been sending those out in the mail um we're so excited about them so keep sending us messages on instagram at rocky mountain red-handed facebook or send us an email so i just got a picture of someone who sent uh one of our stickers that was stuck above the button you push to cross the sidewalk on a street light oh, pole i love that that's so awesome yeah so keep those pictures coming in guys yeah we like to see the pictures if you send us one we'll share it on our instagram yes for sure so thank you so go ahead and send us a DM or email us at Rocky Mountain Redhanded at gmail.com. Becky remembered our email, you guys. That's a big deal. <laughs> so Becky. if you want a sticker, let us know. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, how to begin our case today. Oh, this case seemed to unravel on me like a sweater, Mel. It's a crazy one. I like literally started researching. I pulled a thread and all of a sudden, the entire sweater fell apart on this oh, case. Man. Yeah. I had heard of the Bennett family murders in Colorado. So I started to do the research. And again, it just snowballed, snowballed, snowballed into a huge case. Um, yeah, I began to research the Aurora and Lakewood attacks in the Denver, Colorado area in the mid-1980s. But then, like, the violence and pure evil of this predator spread into Arizona and Nevada. I had no clue I was getting into a multi-state case. So I think this is our first case that spreads multiple states, right? Mm-hmm, I think that. so. Mm-hmm. So we're going to share this story with you a little differently than we normally do. Uh, though this case took over 30 years to unravel, we will lay out all of the information out to the beginning so that we can concentrate on the victims instead of the attacker, the murderer, the rapist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The terrible human being. Yeah, definitely. So this is the story of the victims. James Hobbins Child, Kimberly Hobbins Child Rice, Donna Dixon, Patricia Smith, Bruce Bennett, Deborah Bennett, Melissa Bennett, Vanessa Bennett, Roy Williams, Chris Berry, and Nancy Berry. So Becky, do you know what a ball peen hammer is? It's like a smaller version of a hammer, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I had to look it up. It's called a ball-peen hammer because, and honestly, I'm just learning this right along with you guys. It is used for peening, which, do you know what peening is, Mel? I don't. (laughs) So, which it's what happens when you, like, harden a surface by impact. So, it can also be used for, like, rounding off metal edges of, like, pins and fasteners. And then, of course, like everyday hammer use with the flat end of the hammer. Okay. So the more you know, I guess. Yeah. Now you know what a ball-peen hammer is. Thank Mm -hmm. you for educating us. Um, I'm guessing this has to do with our case today. Yes. 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 So today's case, our killer had the moniker of the Denver Hammer Killer. Um, Some of you may have heard of this case, but unfortunately, he did more than just terrorize Denver in 1984. Alex Christopher Ewing from Sacramento, California, pardon me, 
went on a nine-month-long crime spree. He brutally murdered, raped women and children, bludgeoned, robbed, and seriously terrorized people peacefully spending time in their own homes. What a violation. In some of these crimes, he was captured right away, but on others, it would take until 2018. Needless to say, we are happy to report to you that Ewing will be tucked away in prison until the day he dies. He is currently serving four life sentences at Colorado Territorial Correctional Facility in Cannon City, Fremont County, Colorado. Yeah, so now you know who the attacker is. Um, that's so through. You just remember when we we're going through this case, all of this wasn't discovered until 2018. So, um, yeah, so we got kind of got our bad guy out of the way early in this case. So um, we'll get to tell you the story of our victims. The first attack came on January 4th, 1984. America was chin deep in the race for the White House. You know how those years are. It just completely takes over everyone's minds. Uh, Democrat Walter Mondale versus Republican Ronald Reagan. Spoiler alert, Reagan wins with 59% of the popular vote. I if had you, no idea. If you didn't know that. Yes. The Denver metro area had a population of about 1.6 million back then. Just southwest of Denver, you will find Lakewood, Colorado, a nice bedroom community with residential streets of middle-class families. Most residents commute into Denver each day and enjoy the good public schools in Lakewood. James and Kimberly Halbin's child were a married couple with no children. The two lived in a comfortable home on a quiet street in Lakewood. On the evening of Wednesday, January 4th, Kimberly had already headed off to bed for the evening. It was a weekday, so she probably had to get up in the morning for work. Her husband, James, had promised a friend to, and get this, Mel, this is the most 80s sentence I've ever heard in my life. Ready? You said that on the last episode. Did I really? Uh (laughs) Well, let's see if it beats this, okay? Okay. Let me know, listeners. So he was staying up late to make a mixtape of music for a friend's aerobics class that they were instructing. That's pretty 80s. I'm trying to remember what you said last time. Yeah, it's, well, I'll have to listen back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he stayed up late making the mixtape and didn't get to bed till about 2 a.m. So James, in his like foggy state of half sleep, forgot to close the garage door. A simple thing, something I'm sure everyone has done at some time in their lives, right? I, yeah, definitely. In fact, I have neighbors walk by at late at night and say, hey, your garage door's open, so I closed it for you. Me and Becky now have garage doors that if we don't close, close we'll them automatically close. Yes, yes. Thank so. you for that fine, Melody. You're <laughs> well, unfortunately, in this case, this small detail would change the trajectory of their lives. Later that early morning, before the sun began to rise for a new day, Ewing snuck into their home. He crept through the dark garage and into the dark house. He made his way to the couple's bedroom and saw the two sleeping peacefully in bed. He held a ball-peen hammer in his hand. Suddenly, James was attacked when the hammer came down onto his skull. He was struck on the left side of his head. Confused, he awoke to the blows from the hammer hitting him over and over and over. He, like, instinctually raised his hands, I think, that we would all do to protect ourselves and protect our skulls. His hands were struck by the hammer as well. I'm sure he was thinking, like, what is happening here? He he was in a deep sleep just a second before, and then this pain. Um, He said then in the moonlight, he saw a hammer coming down upon him. The attacker panicked. Why was the man fighting back? Wasn't he unconscious by now? The woman, 
Kimberly had awoken from her sleep and Ewing was losing control of the situation. He threw the hammer directly at Kimberly's head and the hammer struck her hard. James jumped out of bed, head bleeding, and he was disoriented. He ran after their attacker, following him into the cold January night. Ewing's footprints were left in the snow. Kimberly called 911 and reported the attack. Oh, so scary. I still can't imagine the invasion of being attacked in your sleep, in your own bed. Yeah, it's when you're the most calm, you're the most relaxed, you feel the safest. The most vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. So James chased after him outside, but he lost track. His, I mean, think about it. His head is thinning and his footsteps must have been so heavy in the snow. He was losing blood. James, you know, went back to the house, secured the house, locked the doors, locked the windows, checked everything, and the couple waited for emergency services. Uh, James and Kimberly would not know the identity of their attacker till 34 years later. Their lives moved on after the attack. Uh, the couple did end up divorced, but, um, you know, they're happy living with their new partners and family, happy in their lives. Both suffered panic attacks and PTSD throughout the years. No surprise there. I mean, I don't know how you would be able to, like, sleep peacefully after something like that. That would be really hard. I'm hoping they got some therapy and were able to work through some of it, but that would be really difficult. Yeah, James, in the research that um, I read, is James said he has nightmares every single night. He wakes up in terror every single night, and I can only imagine. Yeah. So um, they were more fortunate than some of Ewing's later victims, but still their lives were so altered. The security they once felt was taken from them. And no matter how hard you try, it, I don't think it can ever be fully returned. It almost feels like like if this was his first attack, he wasn't maybe as vicious as he would later be in the year. He seemed to panic, right? And then just leave suddenly. I think you're right because he like threw the hammer. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we'll definitely see him unfortunately progress as the case goes on. Yeah. Well, just five days later on the evening of Monday, January 9th, Ewing would strike again. Donna Dixon was a successful flight attendant. At 28, she lived in a beautiful home in Aurora, Colorado, another suburb of Denver, with her longtime boyfriend, Ron Holm. He was a pilot for a commercial airline. So she was a flight attendant. He was a pilot. So Ron was out of town for work, you know, crisscrossing the skies, and Donna was home knocking off some, like, mundane domestic tasks we all have to do as adults. Mm -hmm. So Donna can recall... She ran a few errands and then headed home just after dark. As she pulled into her neighborhood, she stopped at the mailbox and grabbed a handful of mailers, advertisements, a bill or two, and if they were lucky, a, like a postcard or a letter from a friend. They, I mean, I actually despise getting the mail. Do you really? I do not like it. I leave it as long as possible. It's my <laughs> least favorite thing to do. So I love getting the mail because I do a lot of shopping online. I do too, but it just feels like the papers end up everywhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But don't you love the idea of getting like an old-fashioned letter? I don't remember last time I received you. I'm going to send you a postcard, Mel. We live like 10 houses away. Yeah. I'm still, still going to send you a postcard. You just wait. Perfect. I love it. I'll enjoy getting the mail. Exactly. So Donna picked up the mail and pulled into her driveway and opened the garage with the remote. She parked her car in the garage and reached back to grab her crisp flight attendant uniform Hanging behind the driver's seat, it was wrapped in plastic, fresh from the dry cleaners. The uniform blocked her view out the back window, so Donna didn't see anything out of the ordinary in her garage. She didn't see the attack headed her way. 
She grabbed the uniform, keys, mail, her purse, and opened the car door. She doesn't remember a single thing after that. The simple action of getting out of her car in her own garage with her arms full. This episode is going to terrify me. Yeah. Because these are just normal things that you normal do things every day. How many times do you get out of your car and like you can't hold another single thing? You're distracted. We have kids, so mm-hmm. every single time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is just what we do every day. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no one's going to expect an attack at this time. The next morning, about 8 a.m., Ron Holm returned to his home he shared with Donna, the love of his life. He was looking forward to waking her up from sleep in their bed. It had been a long flight, and he wanted to lay down next to Donna. He pulled up to their home and noticed the garage was left open with Donna's car parked neatly in her side of the garage. So Ron found the garage door open. He thought that was odd. They always closed the garage after they entered. Donna was like an extremely safe, conscious woman. It wasn't like her to leave the garage door open all night. Ron got out of his car and noticed Donna's purse and a stack of mail sitting on the garage floor. He thought, why would Donna leave her purse sitting there? Yeah, it's weird. Ron walked up to the front door of their home. There, he saw blood spatter across the front walkway stairs to the front door. Something definitely wasn't right. He walked inside, his eyes looking for anything else out of place, and nothing. Everything was as it should be. Their home looked comfortable and tidy as it always did. Then Ron reached his and Donna's bedroom. There he saw her, Donna, lying across the bed. No clothing. And blood, a lot of blood, soaked into the pillows and sheets, and Donna's beautiful hair matted with sticky blood. Ron ran to her to wake her up to shake her back into consciousness. She moaned and tried to mutter words to him. She just wanted to sleep. She was so tired. She thought, why doesn't Ron just let me go back to sleep? Ron forced her over to her side, and he then saw her skull. The left side of her skull held a huge open wound. Ron quickly dialed 911 as he held his girlfriend. He was constantly trying to keep her awake by gently shaking her and asking her questions. She couldn't form any words, though. At least she was conscious for now. He talked to 911, trying to explain what he had found when he arrived home. Then all of a sudden, the puzzle pieces snapped into a picture. Donna didn't have an accident. She had been attacked. And of course, an accident is the first thing you're going to suspect, right? Right, because you just, this is unfathomable. Unfathomable. Well, well, and the rest of the house isn't ransacked. Nothing looks fishy, you know. So I I don't, it doesn't surprise me that his mind went to an accident. I agree. Yeah. So Ron ran back to the garage and looked through Donna's purse. No money. Her wallet had been raided. He looked into her car and there he found a bloodbath. Her seats, both driver and passenger, held just pools of blood. In one of the pools of blood, he saw a ball peen hammer. He looked around the car and noticed her clothes. Her clothing was sprawled across the cold garage concrete. Her shoes, her pants, her shirt, her socks, her underwear, it was all there on the floor. Ron sprinted back to Donna and back to the telephone. He gripped the phone and told the operator what he had discovered. This was no accident. Donna had been brutally attacked. Aurora Police Department and emergency medical technicians swarmed their home. They rushed Donna to the hospital. It was a miracle that she was hanging on to life. So Detective Marv Brandt, a homicide detective with Aurora Police Department, walked around the crime scene, his eyes catching the evidence hidden in plain sight. He mentally put 
the pieces together and created a timeline of events in his head. So Donna pulled into the driveway and turned her car off. She opened the door to get out of her car, holding her purse, mail, flight attendant uniform, and keys. She's attacked, struck on the left side of her head. The force of the hammer slammed her back into the vehicle. Wearing gloves to avoid fingerprints, the attacker, who of course we know to be Ewing, dropped the hammer into the car and began his violent attack. There in the cold garage, Ewing beat and sexually assaulted the unconscious woman. Before Ewing skulked away into the night, he raided Donna's purse, stealing her cash out of her wallet. He left her there for dead, naked, on the concrete floor. So let's stop there for our first break. Give your brain the natural nutrients, blood flow, and neurotransmitter support it needs to make the fight with depression an unfair fight. Get stronger daily with Whole Supplement. Build momentum each day with the Whole Depression Relief Stack, the three targeted daily formulas that will help you feel, enjoy, and progress again. So, how do you take the Whole Stack? One, wake up formula. Take wake up in the morning with a glass of water to kick off your day with motivation and energy. Number two is the daytime formula. Day take daytime around lunch to ensure you have the focus, mood, and productivity to power through the day. That sounds like something we all need. Number three, the sleep it off formula. Take sleep it off about an hour before you plan to go to sleep for amazing rest and brain support that will consistently set you up for better days. I've experienced depression since I was a teen. I try to do my best to take care of my mental and emotional health and manage my anxiety and depression. But even with medication, I can find myself struggling in some days. I started taking whole supplement just a couple weeks ago and I already feel like I am giving my body the armor it needs to win the fight each and every day. The ingredients in whole supplements have been used for hundreds of years. They just haven't been put together this way to help people struggling with depression. There are no proprietary blends and no hidden ingredients in whole supplement. So here's Adam Steer, founder and CBO of Whole Supplement. I started Whole Supplement with the mission to help others who, like myself, have struggled with finding relief from depression and anxiety. Our number one goal is to empower everyone we can to make meaningful progress every single day. So now is the time to take care of your emotional and mental health. During the pre-launch offer, you can receive the entire Whole Depression Relief Stack at 15% off. Go to wholesupplement.com and use code ROCKYMOUNTAIN. Again, go to wholesupplement.com and use coupon code ROCKYMOUNTAIN. Simplify your fight with the Whole Stack from Whole Supplement. Thank you so much to our sponsors. Now let's get back to our story and Donna's attack. So temperatures dipped into the high teens that night. January in Denver is literally cold. I hate the cold. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, the cold temperatures actually kept her alive. With her body so cold, it slowed down her heart rate, and this kept her from bleeding to death in the garage. That completely makes sense. Sometime after Ewing left, Donna regained consciousness on the concrete floor in the garage. She was completely unaware of the attack and was not in any pain. Donna can recall waking up and, like, not understanding why she fell asleep on the garage floor. Yeah, not understanding the shock that she was experiencing, Donna made her way to her bedroom and fell quickly back asleep. So, like, like what sense. we were just saying, the, the blood, there was a little bit of blood splatter on the front porch, oh. probably when she was, like, trying to get into the house or the door. But other than that, it's just a straight shot to her bedroom, and that's why the house was just 
Clean. That's Clean. Scary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Donna was robbed, but Detective Brandt believed the crime to be sexually motivated. He didn't know why Ewing chose Donna. The cash was just a bonus to the cold hard Ewing. At the hospital, Donna was on life support with catastrophic head trauma. There was a fair possibility that she would not be able to pull through the attack. If she did, she would suffer from severe head trauma, which was a good guess the doctors were making. Would she ever be herself again? That's a lot of trauma. Ron never left Donna's side. He wouldn't even think or consider the possibility of Donna not pulling through. He just plain refused it. He knew that whoever attacked Donna could read the local papers and know that she was still alive. Would he return to kill her? Ron refused to leave her. Not even for a minute was Donna left alone. Ron borrowed a friend's gun and slept on the floor next to her each night as she laid in the hospital. So devoted. I know, I know. After several operations, Donna's medical team was actually able to stabilize her. She had severe brain trauma and had lost a huge amount of blood, but she would pull through. She regained consciousness and began therapy immediately. Donna was, like, literally starting over, Mel. It took six months of rehab before she could even speak a sentence. Within a year of physical, mental, and emotional hard work, Donna was able to make a full recovery. She was a walking, talking miracle. It took a long time for Donna to understand what had happened to her. Before checking out of the hospital, she met with her doctors, Detective Brandt and the hospital psychiatrist. Her team of caregivers told her the full story of what happened to her. Donna couldn't remember anything after opening her car door with her hands full. Nothing. Donna has no memory of the attack or of even seeing her attacker for a second. In all of the years since her attack, she has not recovered any memories, and she considers this a blessing. Donna is a woman of strong faith, and she feels like each day is a blessing. What do you think, Mel? Would you feel robbed for not knowing what happened in those few minutes or was you considered a blessing i think i would consider it a blessing that has to be so traumatic and i think her brain is trying to protect her i think you're absolutely right yeah even through with her waking up and not understanding i think her brain yeah her brain was just protecting her from it our brains are amazing things Mm -hmm. aurora colorado was terrified neighbors could not believe this attack happened in their neighborhood donna was such a beautiful person inside and out The crime scene techs swept the scene and collected every shred of evidence they could. Surely the police would catch Donna's attacker quickly. Unfortunately, they wouldn't. And Donna would need to wait over 30 years to receive answers to her questions. So the next day, on Tuesday, January 10th of 1984, Patricia Smith would lose her life to Alex Christopher Ewing, the same man who attacked James and Kimberly and Donna Dixon. Like, the next day. Usually our, usually serial killers take a while to escalate. Yeah. Nope, this guy's like, pedal to the metal. Patricia Smith was a successful interior designer, a very active woman, a mother, and a grandmother. At 50 years old, Patricia lived with her daughter, Cherry Letton, and her two grandchildren. She loved living with her family and doted on her grandchildren. She somewhat played a motherly role to her grandkids. She helped, like, drive and pick them up from school and help them with their chores and schoolwork. On January 10th, Cherry Letton, Patricia's daughter, received a call from her children's school. Patricia did not pick the kids up like she always did. 
Immediately, Cherry knew something was very, very wrong. Patricia would never forget about her grandchildren. Never. Cherry left work immediately, picked up the children, and headed straight home. When she pulled up to the house, she noticed the garage door was wide open and her mother's car was parked there. Cherry had a terrible feeling that she was about to walk into her own worst nightmare. She entered her home and saw it. Her mother, Patricia Smith, was laid out on the floor on her back. She knew instantly that her mom was deceased. Uh, Patricia had been positioned, displayed, with her arms laid across her chest like you would see in a casket. Patricia was partially nude, her legs spread apart, and her head was covered with a blanket. Mel, this is horrible. Sadly, the blanket her attacker used to, Ewing, of course, used to cover her face was her four-year-old grandson's security blanket. My kids all have blankets, and so that just rips my heart out. It makes my stomach drop out. It's just so sick. Mm -hmm. Patricia's purse had been raided, and the items were scattered around the area. Her cash was stolen. She had been beaten with a ball-peen hammer and sexually assaulted. Ewing had left the hammer next to Patricia's body. Now, of course, we know it was Ewing, but it would, again, take 30 years to for police to discover that this was Patricia's killer. The crime scene techs gathered the evidence, secured it, and waited till time and science could give them the answers that they needed to stop this monster. Less than a week after Patricia's brutal sexual assault and murder, Ewing attacked again in the Denver area. This time, he traveled back over to Aurora, just down the street from Donna Dixon's home, and this time, he would attack an entire family. Connie Bennett, a grandmother and matriarch of a large, close family, received a phone call. The call came from the family business, which was a local furniture store. The entire family, multiple generations, worked side by side each day. The business secretary called Connie to let her know her son Bruce and daughter-in-law Deborah did not show up for their shifts at the business that day. The couple was supposed to arrive early in the morning, but by mid-morning they still hadn't shown up to work and they were not answering the telephone at their home. So Connie hopped right into her car and headed over to Bruce and Deborah's house. The family had just moved into their new home a few months ago, and in fact the entire Bennett family had been at their home just the night before. They had celebrated their daughter, Melissa's eighth birthday. Connie and her two other sons and their families had left the home about 9 p.m. after the celebration. Connie recalled she noticed the garage door was open as she left the pantry. If we get anything from this oh episode, close your garage, apparently. Close your garage. I know. Like, the idea of seeing my garage door open now is, like, putting me in a panic. Uh-huh. She didn't say anything because she knew her son, Bruce, was going to head to the corner store to grab a gallon of milk for the family's breakfast. There was no reason to mention it. He would run for the milk and then just return back home. He would shut the garage door and secure the house like he always had before. Just a mere 13 hours after Connie had left their home the night before, Connie again pulled into the driveway of Bruce and Deborah's house. The first thing she noticed was the garage door left wide open. Both of the family's cars were sitting in the garage. As Connie walked up to the front door, she noticed Deborah's purse and belongings spread all over the front yard. Right then and there, she knew something had gone terribly wrong. Despite her terror, Connie walked up to the front door and opened it. Once she stepped inside the dark house, she saw her son laying in a pool of blood, dressed only in his boxer shorts. She ran to him and knew instantly that he had died. Connie called 911 and reported what she had found. 
she warned the emergency operator that she may pass out. Her head was spinning and her heart pounded in her chest. Connie had only made it into the home just a few steps and found her son, deceased. What about the rest of the family? Where were they? Why was the house so quiet? There were two small children living in that home. Connie waited with the operator over the phone. She sat next to her son, laying dead with blood pooled around his head. Connie just could not bring herself to walk up the stairs, afraid of what she may find. Within just a few minutes, the Aurora Police Department arrived along with emergency medical technician. Connie was walked outside the family home and placed into a police car. The police needed to start processing the crime scene. The officers didn't know if the attacker was still in the home or where the rest of the family was in the house. They searched the Bennett family home. Ron was located downstairs where Connie had found him and officers found Deborah and their two children upstairs. So I have to say here, I cannot imagine having to sit and wait in the police car. That would just be the longest time ever. Just terrible watching them walking through the house, not knowing what's going on. Yeah, I think that I'm in one of those situations, I would be one of those people that they would need to, like, knock out. Like, restrain me. I'm because... dead serious. Like, I love our police officers, but I don't think I would be, like, very cooperative. Very patient. Yeah, in that situation. So, Detective Marv Brandt, the same Detective Marv Brandt who worked Donna Dixon's case, came to the Bennett home and took control of the crime scene. He began his investigation outside and noticed right away the person in the front yard. Instantly, he thought of Donna Dixon. I'm sure his heart just fell, don't you think? Yeah. Knowing that this is just looking all too familiar. Similar. So, again, the Bennett home was literally less than a mile away from Donna's house. He couldn't believe all the similarities he could see in the two cases. His city was under attack. Detective Brandt worked his way into the house and saw Bruce laying at the bottom of the stairs. He had been hit many times on the head and arms with a hammer. Bruce put up a fight, and the blood pattern evidence showed every step. Police believe he confronted the attacker at the top of the stairs. Blood spatter showed Bruce had fought the attacker all of the way down the stairs. The attack had been violent. Broken spindles on the staircase railing laid around the stairs. What a hero trying to, like, protect his family. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Bruce was badly injured by the time they reached the bottom of the stairs, but he wasn't dead. The attacker, who, again, we know is Ewing, entered the kitchen and grabbed a butcher knife from the drawer. He returned and slit Bruce's throat from ear to ear, killing him. Bruce had done all he could possibly do to stop the attack and defend his family. He seriously gave his life doing what he could to protect his wife and two small children. Detective Brandt made his way up the battered and bloody staircase. In the master bedroom, he found Deborah Bennett. She was face down and laid in a pool of her own blood. The back of her skull had been caved in with a hammer. Arguably, the most difficult discovery was found in the children's bedroom. Melissa, who had just celebrated her eighth birthday the night before, was found dead. She had been sexually assaulted and her skull had been crushed with a hammer. The Bennett home held a secret miracle. Within the walls of this nightmare, the police discovered a small heart beating. Vanessa, just three years old, was found by first responders between the wall and her bed. She had been beaten in the head by the hammer, sexually assaulted, but she was still alive. She was found beneath a big, fluffy, white teddy bear. The detective, Br Detective Brant believes Ewing thought that she was dead. 
The police and crime scene techs gathered every shred of evidence they could locate in the family home. The hammer was not recovered. Ewing must have taken it with him, but the knife that was used to kill Bruce was located right next to his body. It was covered in blood. Biological evidence was collected from the sheets in the girl's shared bedroom. Again, the attack had been sexually motivated. Connie Bennett sat next to her granddaughter's bedside in the hospital for weeks. When Vanessa regained consciousness, Connie had to tell her granddaughter, just three years old, I mean, practically a baby, that her family was gone. How, now how do you help a child just three years old understand such a thing? Vanessa was able to leave the hospital after two months and joined her loving family to begin her recovery and her life. I don't, that's not something that a three-year-old could understand. I don't know what you do to help her. The community was absolutely terrified. There were a lot of rumors around the community. Some people spoke of the hammer phantom who would attack and kill you if you didn't shut your garage door. People ran from their vehicles into their homes for fear of the hammer murder. The Aurora Police Department reached out to the FBI and their famous team of profilers, and they responded. So the FBI described an attacker who acted on impulse. Not a lot of planning went into choosing his victims, which I would agree with, don't it you think? It sounds like they're picked based on easy access to the home. The garage is left open so that he goes in. Uh, yeah, I 100% agree. Um, the profilers believed his primary motive was to inflict pain, not to cause death. What do you think about that, Mel? That's interesting. Like, he enjoyed the process of hurting Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, he enjoyed the attack, yeah. Law enforcement went right to work. The Aurora and Lakewood Police Department followed every lead and interviewed hundreds of people. Law enforcement was dedicated to solving these crimes. James and Kimberly Haben's child attack, Donna Dixon's sexual assault and attack, Patricia Smith's sexual assault and murder, and then the Bennett family. Bruce and Deborah's murder, Melissa's sexual assault and murder, and the family's only survivor, three-year-old Vanessa's sexual assault and attack. This case has a lot of victims. It's a lot. And we're not even done yet. And some kids, which mm-hmm. we don't like covering. Well, so we don't like cover them. The Denver area braced for another attack. But surprisingly, it didn't come. Their killer fell silent. Days turned into weeks and weeks turned into months. Nothing. No sign of a hammer killer and no sign of a viable suspect or person of interest. The killer had simply vanished, but he had a, such a strong M.O. Think about it, Mel. Like, open garage door, rummaging of the purses, attack with the ball peen panner. This, I mean, a ball peen panner is not a common way to attack someone. No, definitely not. hmm Now, these are people, like, average people in their homes. Um, it seems like the crime is sexually motivated. The killer had the way he liked to do things, like, down to a T. Ewing slipped through law enforcement's hands and out of the state of Colorado. Shortly after the Bennett family attack, he hitchhiked with a long-haul trucker who was headed out of Denver. The truck driver, his first name was Fred, had no idea who he had picked up. Years later, he voluntarily spoke with police. Fred drove Ewing all the way to Kingman, Arizona, which was over 850 miles. They drove through Utah on I-70 and caught up with I-15 in central Utah. The pair drove down south on I-15 to Nevada and into Arizona to Kingman. A madman had just made Kingman, Arizona his new home. Just 11 days after the Bennett family attack, Ewing made his way to a small home on Evelyn Drive. Roy Williams was sleeping peacefully in his own bed. 
in the early morning hours, he was jolted awake when uh, Mel, get this, 25-pound solid granite rock was thrown onto his head. Roy's skull, mainly his right temple area, was badly fractured, and one of his ribs was cracked. It would take 85 stitches to close the wound on Roy's head. Luckily, Roy did not instantly lose consciousness. He was able to call 911, and first responders came immediately to render aid and look for his attacker, who, of course, we know was Ewing. He ran from Roy's house and disappeared into the desert. Luckily, Ewing was suspected by people in town and apprehended. He was arrested in Kingman, and due to overcrowding in the local jail, he was transported to Washington County, Utah Jail, about 240 miles from Kingman, to await his trial. Okay, so let's stop here and review because, unfortunately, we've had a lot of victims and attacks we have covered in this episode. Ewing's first attack was James and Kimberly Hobbins Child in Lakewood, Colorado, on January 4th, 1984. Yeah, so then just five days later, on January 9th, he attacked Donna Dixon in Aurora, Colorado. The following day, Patricia was murdered in Lakewood on January 10th. Six days later, on January 16th, the Bennett family was murdered. Little Vanessa was the lone survivor. Then Roy Williams was attacked in Kingman, Arizona, 11 days later, on January 27th. So Alex Ewing inflicted all of this death, all of this terror, all of it in the span of just 23 days from January 4th to January 27th in 1984. 23 days. So crazy. That's totaling four murders, four sexual assaults, and nine physical attacks with a hammer. Yet he was not done. And we will return after our last break with the rest of the story. Rocky Mountain Red-Handed is brought to you by Balance of Nature. I love my Balance of Nature. I take it every morning and it makes me feel so good. I do not like to eat vegetables, so I take my Balance of Nature to be able to get in the nutrients that I need. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code REDHANDED for 35% off your first order. We call it three and three. I take my three capsules of veggies, three capsules of fruits, and it gives me all I need. So that's Balance of Nature, promo code REDHANDED. And we are back. Big thank you to our sponsors. On Thursday, August 9th, 1984, Alex Ewing was being transferred back to Kingman, Arizona for his trial in the attack of Roy Williams. He had been held at Washington County, Utah Jail for about seven months. Ewing and 11 other prisoners, along with correctional officers, left Washington County Jail for the four-hour drive. They stopped in Henderson, Nevada, just outside of Las Vegas, for a bathroom break. The prisoners were unchained so that they could use the facilities, and Ewing made his great escape. He ran into a nearby Kmart wearing his bright orange jail jumpsuit. And I have to tell you, I'm, like, shocked. No one flagged down the guy running around in an orange prison jumpsuit. That is weird. <laughs> he headed directly to the men's clothing section and changed into red athletic shorts with white trim and a t-shirt. The simple wardrobe change was enough to disguise him from the authorities. Ewing casually walked out from the Kmart and into the streets of Henderson. That night, Ewing made his way to Racetrack Road in Henderson. He didn't find a garage door open. Obviously, this was his favorite way to find his unlucky victim. But unfortunately, he did find a back door that was unlocked, the Barry family home. He crept into the house. Nancy Barry had just been awoken from sleep by her newborn baby. 
She was up, like a lot of young mothers, and preparing a bottle for her baby. That was when she saw Ewing in her kitchen. Nancy screamed and ran towards her husband in their bedroom. Ewing chased after her and found the couple in the bedroom. Using a weathered axe handle, apparently he didn't have his special ball-peen hammer, he attacked Christopher Barry, Nancy's husband, who was still laying in bed. The blows from the axe handle rained down on Christopher, and he was unable to sit up. Nancy defended her husband by trying to block the blows with her body. After she had absorbed a number of the blows, her body couldn't take any more. She ran to the phone and dialed 911. The emergency operator could hear the blows of the axe handle attack in the background of the call. Thump after thump after thump. And can I just say, what's up with axe handles? We just covered that in the New Mexico case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sick people. Yeah. Ewing, can, Ewing continued to beat Christopher even after he had lost consciousness. Nancy hung up with 911 and ran under the bed trying to avoid being struck by the axe handle. Ewing tried to attack Nancy hiding under the bed. He was able to strike her several times in the head. Um, Nancy was smart, though. She decided to play dead while she laid under the bed. Ewing, believing his victims were both dead, left the house. Thankfully, and I was nervous about this, the newborn baby was left unharmed. Such a relief. Christopher received the help he needed in time and actually survived the attack. He had severe head trauma and remained in a coma for over a week and then received the rehabilitation he needed for his recovery. Nancy had a concussion from the axe handle blows to her head. Luckily, by hiding under the bed, her blows of the hammer was like a fraction of the force of Ewing's other victims. Nancy also had two broken arms and two broken wrists from trying to protect her husband. Way to go, Nancy. I know, so Police pursued Ewing by helicopter and also organized a massive ground search. Can I say, way to go, Clark County Sheriff? I know, jump like, in there. They're not messing around with this guy. They were not going to let Ewing slip away into the Nevada desert. On foot, Ewing ran towards Lake Mead, which I have to tell you, I'm pretty familiar with with Henderson. Mm-hmm. My ex-husband and his beautiful wife live there. Okay. The road to Lake Mead is an awkward road. It's like up a hill, and I'm sure back in 1984, it was the middle of nowhere. Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. Two days after the Barry family attack, Lake Mead Park Rangers spotted Ewing trying to make a phone call at a service station. The Rangers approached him, and he, not surprisingly, attempted to run again. He was apprehended quickly and was taken into custody. He was charged with attempted murder and assault and was later found guilty. He was sentenced by a Clark County, Nevada court to prison for 110 years. Again, way to go, Clark County. Just on it. They're not messing around 110 years. Good for him. Yeah. There Ewing sat, serving his time at the Nevada Correctional Center in Carson City, Nevada. Yet, law enforcement was not done with him. The evidence collected at his victims' homes in Colorado sat in evidence storage awaiting the development of DNA science. By 2000, all of the DNA evidence collected in Donna Dixon, Patricia Smith, the Bennett family crime scene had all been tested. They just needed a hit. Detective Marv Brandt, the man who had worked Donna and the Bennett family cases for so many years, was frustrated. His time to retire had come, and he didn't want to walk away from these cases unsolved. He told his department before he left, Please don't forget Donna and the Bennett case. After Detective Brandt's departure, 
the Aurora Police Department assigned Detective Steve Connor to cold cases. At the top of his list was Donna and the Bennett's case. In fact, he felt an additional tie to the Bennett case because he had actually been a patrol officer and had been at the Bennett crime scene years earlier. It seemed as if his career had almost like come full circle, Mel. Mm-hmm. Finally, in 2010, the Aurora Police Department received a hit to the DNA found at the Donna Dixon and Bennett family crime scenes. But it wasn't a match to a person. It was a match to another murder. The DNA found at Patricia Smith's murder matched the Aurora murders. Chief Deputy DA John Kellner and Detective Steve Connor felt like with the help of cutting-edge science, they could finally find their killer. Yeah, so it took a little while, but to connect those cases, that DNA is the one that actually really pulled them together. So Detective Connor said, quote, in some ways it feels like we are chasing a ghost, and given the passage time, it's very possible this person is already deceased, end quote. But no one was going to give up on this case. In the mid-2010s, DNA science had come a long way. Genotyping was brand new science where using a small sample of DNA, they were able to map a composite photo of the suspect. The suspect was found to be a white Caucasian male of northern or central European descent. Then the Aurora Police Department turned to the great Colleen Fitzpatrick. I love Colleen Fitzpatrick. She's so cool. Um, If you know like the DNA Doe Project, she co-founded it. She is seriously one of my heroes. I'm waiting for her biography. So Miss Fitzpatrick is familial DNA. She pretty much wrote the book on the science behind forensic genealogy. Now her and CeCe Moore. If you don't know who Colleen Fitzpatrick is, go look her up. She is absolutely amazing. Miss Fitzpatrick stepped in and took the identification up another level. She was able to give law enforcement a likely last name. Ewing. Ewing. We know that name. We have the the opportunity of looking back on it, though. Right. So we're kind of working it backwards. Yeah. So in 2018, the Lakewood Police Department knocked on the door of Kimberly Hobbins' child, now Kimberly Rice, and James Hobbins' child's homes. So now, you know, they're divorced, happy with their new partners and their growing families. They questioned James and Kimberly about their attacks so many years ago. The physical evidence was presented, and it just wasn't enough to press charges. But authorities believe that Ewing is their attacker. There just wasn't enough to actually press charges. With the information they had gathered, Colorado law enforcement was so close. The Arapahoe County Court decided to go ahead and file an affidavit for John Doe, the unknown DNA profile for the crimes committed against Patricia Smith and the Bennett family. The affidavit included so three counts of murder in the first degree after deliberation, three counts of murder in the first degree, felony murder, one count of criminal attempt to commit murder in the first degree, two counts of sexual assault in the first degree, one count of assault in the first degree, two counts of sexual assault of a child, one count of first-degree burglary. All of these counts were filed on August 10, 2018. So Colorado law enforcement was so close. They knew their murderer was seriously within their grasp. With the information they had gathered, they decided to look into crimes with similar MOs in neighboring states. That's where they heard about the attacks in Nevada and Arizona. D.A. Kellner contacted Northern Nevada Correctional Center, Medium Security Prison, and asked them for a sample of Alex Ewing's DNA. Bingo! 
After 34 years, the Denver Hammer Killer had a name. Alex Christopher Ewing. I cannot imagine how those officers must have felt after so long to finally know who it was. Yeah, and the community at large, for sure. Ewing was already serving his sentence in Nevada for the attempted murder of Christopher and Nancy Berry, um, the Nevada case that we just read about. Ewing was already serving his sentence in Nevada for the attempted murder of Christopher and Nancy Berry that we, that we just covered, yet Nevada allowed his extradition. The Nevada Supreme Court called his extradition to Colorado, quote, warranted, end quote, which I would agree with them. Yeah. After hearing the grisly details, they had no problem sending him back to Colorado. Alex Ewing pleaded not guilty and his trials began. The keystone of the state's case against Ewing was the DNA evidence from the multiple crime scenes. The DNA, including semen and hair, including root, was recovered from the victim's bodies, the carpeting under and around the bodies. Sadly, the semen was found and tested from the blanket, which was which belonged to Patricia Smith's three-year-old grandson. This is the same blanket that was placed over Patricia's face after she was killed. Finally, on August 5th, 2021, Alex Christopher Ewing, 60 years old, was found guilty on all counts, including three counts of first-degree murder and three counts of felony murder. Less than two weeks later, on August 17th, 2021, Ewing's sentencing hearing took place. He will spend the rest of his life in prison. Alex Ewing was sentenced to four lifetimes for the committed crimes. Unfortunately, the statute of limitation had run out for all the crimes committed against Donna Dixon. She still attended the trials for her fellow victims in support and unity for the families. Roy Williams, the gentleman in uh, Kingman, Arizona, who was attacked, was connected to Ewing, yet Ewing has never been charged for his vicious assault. After Ewing's sentencing, D.A. Kellner stated, quote, I hope this case is a testament to all those who have lost someone and are waiting and hoping. Vanessa Bennett, who was just three years old at the time of her family's murder, her sexual assault and attack, spoke during the victim impact statement in front of Alex Ewing. She's had a hard life. She suffers from, you know, anxiety, depression, anger issues, and um, has battled drug use her entire life. She said, quote, I'm sober now, but I still can't talk about things, many things, with my family or anybody else for that matter. But all everyone else sees is my anger and my antisocial behavior. I didn't just lose my parents and my sister. I lost my trust in people and my dignity and pride. I lost the person I was supposed to be. End quote. That is heartbreaking. That's probably heartbreaking. one of the most heartbreaking things on the story. Mm-hmm. Alex Christopher Ewing committed murder, sexual assault, and violent attacks in three of our Rocky Mountain states. I am happy they have locked him up now and thrown away the key. We send our prayers to all of the survivors and families and communities who were affected by this monster, especially Vanessa Bennett. She was such a young child, a baby, and she had to go through something that is just horrific. Yeah, especially Vanessa Bennett. She's just, she's she's amazing that she has um, persevered. Yeah, I can't imagine at her young age having to deal with that. No. Mm-hmm. I think of our Rocky Mountain Redemption could be just the story of Ron Holm and Donna Dixon Holm. So this is cool. This is so cool. We have our Rocky Mountain Redemption in this terrible case that we just covered. In all of this, we have an amazing love story. In the deepest, darkest time of Donna's recovery in 1984, after Ewing's vicious assault, 
Donna had an incredible partner who stayed by her side. Remember we mentioned he wouldn't even let her be in the hospital bedside alone. And he actually slept on the floor of the hospital with a gun he had borrowed just in case Donna's attacker came back for her. Yet Ron stayed by her side and helped her through her recovery both physically and emotionally. He knew this was the woman he always wanted to be with forever. Ron proposed to Donna one night at home. He made her favorite dessert, a crusted pistachio pudding with chopped nuts and whipped cream. And using nuts, this is so cute, using the nuts, he meticulously spelled out, Donna, will you marry me, Ron? Oh, that's so cute. Needless to say, Donna said yes. They were married mere months after Donna's assault. In fact, Donna had to wear a wig at her wedding to cover her bald head. Ron still found her breathtakingly beautiful on their wedding day. The couple battled against their injuries and worked hard during her rehabilitation, fighting side by side for every small victory. One year and nine days later, Donna was able to return to work as a flight attendant. The couple has been married since 1984 and still resides in Aurora, Colorado. Wow, such a good story to come out of such a terrible story. Yeah, I mean, we have to really seriously give Ron props. That must have been really scary, not knowing. I mean, this is just a few months. They were married in May. And she was attacked in January. So at that time, we know she's not even saying complete sentences. Yet, not knowing if she was going to be 100%, he still proposed to her. He just wanted to be with her. He knew who his partner was. That's amazing. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, and I just love that. That's our Rocky Mountain Redemption. So don't forget to share this case with your friends and family and social media followers. It really helps us out. Um, our socials, our Instagram is at Rocky Mountain Red Handed. You can find us on Facebook and you can send us an email, Rocky Mountain Red Handed at gmail.com. Thanks for that, Melanie. Yes, of course. <laughs> if you like us, please follow, rate, and review us. We'd love to keep bringing you true crime cases from the Rocky Mountain states. Yep. Thanks for being with us here today. And we will be back next Wednesday. So until then, keep your hands clean. <laughs>